Welcome to our podcast, Learning is Disruptable. Together, we will explore the intersection of disruptive innovation and education. When we say disruptable, we're not talking about the disruptive student who's causing chaos in the classroom. We're talking about the need, potential, and path for pursuing change. Disruptive innovation is a business theory referring to when a new product or service competes with something offered by a larger, more established business and eventually replaces it. The typical education system is so vast that it's almost impossible to change without starting something much smaller. Homeschools, microschools, and co-ops provide many opportunities to approach learning differently because each student can have customized learning experiences. The world has and is changing drastically, yet our public education system has not. We hope to add to the conversation regarding a need for change, a need for disruption in the world of education. It's time to disrupt what you thought you knew about learning. Hey listeners, we just got back from a fun trip down to South Texas to McAllen and to Padre Island National Seashore. We had a lot of fun at the beach. We really love those warm gulf waters and the kids especially love the waves in the ocean. I should say most of the kids. Unfortunately, Hiram broke his arm just a few days before we left on our trip and so he has been missing out on some of the fun things that he normally would just love and enjoy. But that is life here with the Browns and we hope things are going well for you. Just wanted to introduce you to our podcast guest today. We are beyond excited to welcome Denise Gaskins. Denise has helped countless families conquer their fear of math through play. As a math coach and veteran homeschool mother of five, Denise has taught or tutored every level from preschool to pre-calculus. She's the author of more than two dozen books and activity guides that help homeschoolers and classroom teachers play math with their kids. Denise shares math inspiration, tips, activity ideas, and games on her blog at denisegaskins.com. I, for one, have used Denise's resources and love them, and they continue to transform how I do math in our homeschool, and I hope you guys learn a lot from our discussion with her today. Let's jump over to it. All right, Denise, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Maybe if you want to just introduce yourself to the audience and let us know more about what you do and your expertise. Okay, well, I'm a mother of five. All of my kids have homeschooled the whole way through. We homeschooled back in the day, so they've all now graduated, grown, mostly flown from the nest, but no grandkids yet. Possibly later this year, we're expecting one. We were eclectic homeschoolers back in the dark ages before the internet was really well available out in the rural area where we were. Um, Our primary curriculum was mostly our local library. But along the way, I noticed how many of my homeschooling friends really had fear of math. That, you know, math anxiety is epidemic in Western culture. I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but Some estimates say more than 80% of adults in Western culture experience at least some level of math anxiety, discomfort, avoidance, just even emotional pain when they're forced to do some math. And sometimes even to the extent that it drives them away from a desired career. So I became sort of a math evangelist to my fellow homeschoolers, trying to convince them that that there is beauty and fun to be had, even in math, and it doesn't have to be like what it was when we were in school. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, I've i gotten that from you, right? That excitement about math, that new vision of what math can be. I think a lot of us are homeschool moms who went to public school, and so all we know really is that traditional public school math. And so I'm excited to talk to you more about that today. And maybe we'll start by asking, what are some ways traditional schools and maybe even some homeschooling curriculums fail our children as they attempt to help them learn mathematics? And is there a better way that is accessible to families? Well, generally, human beings enjoy success. We like things that we feel we can do well at. We like to feel like we're capable of understanding big ideas. 
and being able to figure things out. And, you know, people enjoy the subjects that give them this kind of success where they can meet new ideas, where they can feel like they're growing in mastery. Children hate subjects that make them feel like a failure. And too often our school math, whether in the classroom or in homeschool, does end up making our children feel like a failure. There, there doesn't seem to be a chance of success. If you think about how your children's attitude shows the way that they're learning, many young children enjoy counting, playing with numbers, making patterns, manipulating shapes, thinking about big ideas like infinity. By the time we reach adulthood, a majority of people feel nervous if they're forced to do math. They dismiss its relevance to their lives. Um, They don't feel embarrassed to say, I'm not good at math. As educational outcomes, this is really a disaster. And our whole system of math education, both in the classroom and in the homeschool, is failing our students. It's math education is ripe for disruption. Well, and we've uh, kind of communicated before this podcast with you a lot, so you know that innovation and disruption is really a something we're excited about because we think there are better solutions and better ways to do things. So let's just dive into that one concept a little bit more deeply. What are some opportunities or what are some ways we might could disrupt math? Um, And maybe even what do you think might be the most important thing we could change? I think the most important thing that we need to change, we, we need to radically exchange what our idea is of what it means to learn math. Our biggest failure, both in the classroom and in homeschool settings, is that we've given our children a totally wrong idea of what math is all about. And you see this in the culture, too. This is not only in school. This is everywhere. We've, we've all absorbed this. You know, in school, you get an assignment. You work the problems. The teacher grades your answer. The whole experience trains us in one idea, that right answers are the goal. If you can produce a right answer then you're good at math. And if you don't, then you're you're failure. But really, right answers are not what real math is all about. In real math, our goal is different. And right answers aren't terribly important. Right answers are just a side effect. They happen naturally as we work toward our true goal, which is thinking, reasoning, making sense, building this web of interconnected concepts that we call understanding. The way that we see how numbers, shapes, and patterns relate to each other and why they behave the way they do. So no matter what curriculum we use, no matter where we teach math, in the classroom, in the homeschool, unschooling, whether we use a math curriculum at all, we need to make changes that de-emphasize those right answers and put the emphasis on our students' thinking. That's so good. That kind of makes me think about my experience through school. And it was only when I got to graduate business school where they got away from this idea of right answers. And they would often say in in these case discussions, it depends. But the the trick is to know it depends on what. And so we we had to reason through things in a way in graduate school, but it's a shame that you have to wait that far into your education to have that kind of rich experience with learning. Well, hopefully we can help some people not have to wait that long. That's right. Agreed. So I get the sense that the way math is taught in schools, it's not at all like how early mathematicians and even modern day scientists and mathematicians interact with math. So what are your thoughts on that? I think the way that most people see math, the way traditional schooling tends to present math is as a performance subject. It's something that you do. You do it on paper. You do it for other people to judge. You have to learn the rules. You have to follow the rules. You have to do it fast and get the right answer. And the way that one improves at a performance subject, like, say, sports or playing an instrument, is to practice until the task becomes nearly automatic, until you don't have to think about it, you just do it. And perhaps this notion of learning math might have made sense once upon a time, before calculators became commonplace, before phones became this powerful computer that we carry in our pocket or purse. But 
the modern world has made math as a performance subject really obsolete. If math is to have any value to our students today, we need to see it as a human endeavor. We need to see it as a knowledge subject, something that's more like literature and science than like sports or music, something that we do in our minds. We put ideas together we make new connections, we build this web of concepts that interact with each other. And the way to improve at a knowledge subject is to play with it, to explore, to experiment, to share it with others, to discuss, to see how their point of view compares with what you see, and then to seek out new ideas, new experiences, consolidate the new and the old, and together create a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. If we want to disrupt math education, we need to stop viewing it as a performance subject and start treating it as a knowledge subject, and then our children will be able to learn true math. I think that this idea, right, of switching from a performance subject to a knowledge subject is it rings true to me. And I think that through your resources, I've started to do that. I've tried to teach my kids in a way that emphasizes that it's not, not a performance subject. But I also realize it takes a lot of thought work as a mom to then realize if it's not a performance subject, I can't measure it like a performance subject. And that's a tricky thing. It is because we're used to just, you, you check the answers, you make them do it over if they got it wrong. And you just treat it as a performance. You're constantly judging what they're doing, and you think that that gives you an idea of what they understand. But really, it doesn't. The way to get at what they understand is through conversation. And as homeschoolers, we have an advantage that they don't have in the classroom. You can't have a one-in-one -on -one conversation with every student every day. In homeschooling, we can. Yeah, that's awesome. One of the things that you spend a lot of time on that Jerry Lynn uses as a resource is uh, games and puzzles. So what are some approaches for using games and puzzles to help people uh, in their schooling? And maybe even are those things accessible to typical teachers in a classroom? Oh, games are great in the classroom or in the homeschool. They're a good entry level into thinking about math more playfully. Uh, teachers like games because children like them. Children have a positive attitude toward games. They get a fresh uh, break from their textbook work. They're more willing to practice the math. Even if you're thinking of math as a performance, games help children practice it in a positive way that they don't, they don't mind. They'll do a lot more calculations in a game than they ever would on a worksheet. But I think even more important than that fun aspect is that Math games naturally push children to think about what the numbers mean and how they work. The numbers in a math game, unlike on a worksheet, they're not just meaningless abstractions. These numbers are a tool that you're using to try to gain advantage over the other player. I think in math games, we want to be careful. There's a lot of math games out there that focus on speed and trying to to build the memory, the rote production, the performance aspect of school. We want instead to look for games that encourage reasoning, games that give players choices that helps them develop flexibility in their thinking, the ability to think on the spot, to apply the things that they've learned to a new situation, and even to find a way to figure out something they haven't mastered yet. All of this sort of thinking adds up to a more robust type of mathematical fluency than what those speed games ever considered. I have a, a feeling that parents who have had a poor experience with math in their own life and have negative feelings about math are unintentionally passing those same feelings on to their kids. So what advice do you have for those parents? Well, one thing that often helps with math to help you sort of transform your thinking about it is to consider how you teach other subjects. So we know that reading aloud helps our children build their love for books, makes them want to learn to read, makes them enjoy what books can provide. And do you know, it works the same way for math too. And it can transform the parent's attitude as well as the child. A playful math book, most people have never 
really thought of math and playful together, but there are a lot of math books out there that flesh out the bones of abstract math. They bring it alive. They make it human and relatable, interesting to readers of all ages. These books open our eyes to the wonderful world of big ideas of math, where concepts meet, topics intertwine in this beautifully intricate dance of growing understanding. And today, we live in an age of abundance. There are more new creative math books being published every year than I can keep track of. And there's still the older classics, some of them out of print, but you can find them in your public library or through your library loan system. Um, and I brought a list, I'm sure you'll include this in your podcast notes, of some of my favorite books. For younger children, there's Anno's Magic Seeds and the other books by Mitsumaso Anno. And these books play with big math topics, making them accessible through pictures. There's also Christopher Danielson's new books, How Many and Which One Doesn't Belong, that expand our thinking about counting and shapes to build into what it really means to think mathematically. And with both of these types of books with young children, it's not just something you sit down and you read to them. It's a discussion prompt. You know, a, a good picture book just lets you build that relationship, that discussion, those ideas with your children. So each time you read it, it can be new and interesting and you find new things in the pictures. For somewhat older students, chapter book level readers, there's The Cat in Numberland explores the idea of infinity through the metaphor of a grand hotel. Or a newer book, there's Math and Magic in Wonderland, which brings whimsy to a great collection of really classic math and logic puzzles. As your children grow into middle school or high school, probably high school, what is the name of this book? And other puzzle books by Raymond Smullyan are delightful. They, they pose questions that lead to really deep mathematical thinking. Um, and then there's a newer book, The Joy of X by Stephen Strogatz, where he goes just kind of in a survey of the mathematical landscape and demonstrates how math plays an important part in our lives, even if we don't realize it. That's one that Jerry Lynn has read. Yeah, I've read that one, and I love it. I'm, I'm excited to jump into some of these other recommendations you have. Yeah, and we don't want to leave the teachers behind, too, because as homeschooling teachers, one of the greatest things about homeschooling is that we continually are learning. So a couple of books for the teachers, for the adults. There's Mathematician's Delight is a classic by W.W. W. Sawyer that surveys math topics from arithmetic to calculus with clear explanations and a playful attitude. One of my favorite older books. And then the new one is Plague with Math, edited by Sue Van Haddam, that opens your minds to a whole bunch of delightful new ways of thinking about teaching and learning math. What recommendations do you have for parents with kids who push back against math of any kind, whether it's the math is hard or I'm not good at it or math is boring or whatever their excuses for that day? And there's a lot of them like that. But you want to stop and consider anytime your child pushes back against learning, do they have a valid point? You know, our children are human beings and human beings enjoy learning. It's, it's one of our desires to find new things. But so when, when the children push back, do they have a valid point? Have you fallen into the trap of treating math as a performance subject? Do you know when, when we view math as a performance subject, the traditional pattern of lessons seems natural. The teacher explains the method. The students practice the method. They work on their homework independently because you know, they don't want to copy from the teacher. You need the student's thoughts. And then they bring it to the teacher to be judged. But always trying to remember somebody else's method, that's really kind of hard. It's not the way our brains naturally think. And only doing what someone else tells you to do is boring. And no human being will ever be as good at that sort of math as any dollar store calculator. If we want to treat math as a knowledge subject, that sort of math lesson won't cut it. It doesn't build the conceptual understanding, the connections, the mental web of ideas that we want. So instead, we have to spend more time on conversation because our kids need human interaction. 
to really assimilate knowledge. They need to talk about the things that they've learned. They need to compare their ideas to other people's viewpoints. They need to explore how to use the things they know to make sense of a new situation. And as we no longer see right answers as our goal, that thinking behind the answers is the thing that we value. The process of figuring things out, wrapping our brains around new ideas, that's what we want to get after with our kids. That sounds like a way better approach. So does this mean that we need new curriculum or is there something that somebody can, as a parent, can do today to change their child's personal experience with math? You don't need a new curriculum. And I think this is one of the the great homeschooling myths that somewhere out there is that perfect curriculum that will teach my child and make them love the subject and I won't have to do anything. It doesn't work that way. But you can transform the lessons in your current curriculum into an interactive experience where you and the child are reasoning and thinking and learning together. This is a simple change. You can make it today. I call it buddy math. And the way it works is first, you set a timer for 20 or 25 minutes. Mental work is hard. Thinking is exhausting, just like physical labor. We want to keep the lesson short so our kids don't wear out. Then you want to skip the explanations at the beginning. We're not doing the teacher gives you a method and then you follow it. We want to go straight to the homework problems and treat them like little puzzles. We need to figure them out. What are we going to do? Empower your children by giving them choices. So when I was doing math with my daughter, she would get to pick a problem, any problem on the page that she wanted to do. She would do it. And we usually worked with a whiteboard in our laps on the, on the couch. You could call it couch schooling, I guess. She would go through the problem explaining how she thought about it until she got to the end. And then she would choose another problem that she wanted me to solve. So she gets to pick the one she's comfortable with. She gets to hear the ones that are a little bit scary. Then I would go through and do my problem the same way, telling what I was thinking about, focusing on how I made sense of the prod of the problem, not just to remember rules. For example, if my problem was 138 plus 97, I'm not going to write it down on the whiteboard, put them in columns, add up the columns, the traditional pencil and paper method, because you can do that without thinking. That's the old performance type school. You don't have to think about what the numbers mean in order to do the pencil and paper method, which was great when calculators were human beings that sat at desks and did calculations all day. But nowadays, that's not so helpful, and it's not good for learning. So instead, I might say, oh, 138 plus 97. 97's almost 100. That would be easy. It could be 138 plus 100. That's 238. But I've added too much. So what do I do? I have to take away those three extra points that I've added 238, take away those three extras, brings it down to 235. Or say I'm doing fractions and the the problem is one half times three fourths. I wouldn't just say, oh, multiply the top numbers and get the top number of your answer, multiply the bottom numbers. That procedure works, but it does nothing to build a child's understanding of what fractions mean. So instead I might say, oh, this is asking for half of three fourths. I know that half of one-fourth is one-eighth. Since there are three of the fourths, the answer must be three-eighths. This sort of mental reasoning trumps the written methods because when you figure things out in your head like that, it forces you to think about what the numbers really mean and how they relate to each other. It's good to keep that whiteboard or scrap paper handy for whatever you might need as you jot down things along the way. But you continue taking turns solving the problems until your timer rings. And we would usually, um, if we finished a problem and there was less than five minutes left, then we'd stop and my daughter would feel like she got away with something that day. So you end on a positive note. Uh, You don't have to do all the problems on the page. You don't have to do all the lessons in your book. Because you're working one-on-one with the child, you can see exactly what they understand and what they don't. You only need to look back at the lesson if you need a hint to get you through a tough spot. But really, most of the topics you went into are natural extensions of what you've done before. 
if the child is really thinking about the meaning of the numbers, if they're really actively working with it, they can often figure it out using the things they already know. I think that's a super powerful concept because a lot of my work, I end up working with spreadsheets and financial things and I build models for, for some things on a spreadsheet, but I, I have kind of a rough order of magnitude of what I think I'm going to get. And when the spreadsheet kicks out something that doesn't match what I was expecting, it, it gives me the hints. But if I, if I just, if I didn't know how to think about it or what the numbers meant, kind of like your fractions example, the, the spreadsheet could kick out some totally bogus number but I would have no idea because I don't know what they mean. So I, I think that that fluency, I, mean, I guess you could say, of math is, is super powerful. Yeah, the, the key is that math makes sense. If you're not making sense of it, you're not really doing math. Oh, that's a great phrase. Well, and as you're talking, I was thinking about your comment about the books for the teachers. Another good thing that I'm thinking even for myself would be to sit down and do this on my own, maybe before I sit down with a child so that I can start to train my own brain to make sense of the numbers. Because I think this harkens back again to that public school trained mom that feels more most comfortable with putting my numbers in columns and adding them up. But if I practice making sense of numbers, then it's going to be natural for me to teach my child that way. And you learn as you go. That's one of the advantages I think homeschoolers have over classroom teachers. Classroom teachers have to teach the same thing every year. As homeschoolers, we kind of, we grow up with the child. We, we learn along with them. Even if we understand math to begin with, we deepen our understanding as we go because our kids never think the same way we do, at least never on everything. <laughs> I'm often amazed at an approach that my child would use that I would never have considered using. It's like, oh, this lets me see it in a whole new way. And as we're bouncing ideas back and forth, we do that for the child too. We help them see things in a new way. And we both grow. Yeah, I love that insight. That's great. So what if our kids are really stuck by a specific problem? When we're approaching a new topic, how do we start helping them make sense of something when it doesn't automatically make sense? Well, too often in, in our school math, we've, we were trained and we train our kids to follow recipes, to remember the rules. We're focused on the procedures. So when they're stuck, we're tempted to give them this crutch, this method. Here, do this step. Look at the book and follow its steps. Do it this way. Do the way I tell you to. We treat children like computers, like we can program them and they will remember the program and then they'll be able to execute it on demand. And brains don't work that way. Real math is a human endeavor, so we need to teach in a human way. There's no program, no set of procedures that's going to guarantee that we can always generate a right answer. We're facing puzzles that we don't know how to solve. For mathematicians, they're facing big puzzles about infinity or the Riemann hypothesis or whatever that they don't know how to solve. But even in a localized way, our children are facing problems they don't know how to solve. And it's a puzzle. We need to teach them how to approach puzzles, how to figure out something new. Now, we don't expect our children to invent something completely new like the professional mathematician would, but we can give them the experience of real math, that, that aha, I get it, feeling of discovering something that's new to them. Um, but instead of providing a crutch, a rule, a set of steps to follow, we need to teach them a process of thinking that will help them reason their way through any kind of real world situation. Um, I call this process Notice, Wonder, Create. Uh, these aren't three steps. They're kind of an organic cycle of just the way our brains naturally work, naturally flow as we grapple with new ideas. Notice means to focus your attention on the situation. Open your eyes. Take time to see the details. Don't just gloss over it and then jump to what you think might be an answer. Um, with kids, a lot of times, if, if they're used to performance-based math, they'll just look at the numbers in a problem and jump to an answer without stopping to think about the situation of, say, a word problem. So notice is to focus. Wonder is to bring your curiosity to the fore. 
ask questions, think about how the situation connects to things you already know or how it might extend beyond them. And then create, the third part is when you put your mind to work, shaping these things that you've noticed and wondered about into something new, some new understanding, some new explanation of the puzzle. This step of creation is what consolidates the ideas in your mind, what what makes it fully your own. You can think of it sort of like Charlotte Mason's style narration applied to math. This, This is the step that really brings the learning. So your child might create an oral or a written explanation of the puzzle, and they might create a drawing that shows this connection they've found. They might make up a new puzzle that's kind of an extension of the first one, or they may create a story that shows how some calculation would come up in a real-life situation. Let me, let's try an example to kind of see the power of the method. So let's say, you have pencil and paper handy? Okay, grab it right here. Okay, write down the problem. This is the problem you stumble on in your math class and you're in your math homework, two-thirds plus three-fourths. Your child throws up their hand. I don't know. I don't get it. So what are you going to do? Are you going to give them a crutch? Are you going to tell them a rule? Find the common denominator, and then you can add it. Or are you, you know, when you give them a rule, it's you doing the thinking, not them. Are you going to focus on drawing out the... But I like thinking for my children. I know I'm going to put their dishes away fast. And they'll do the laundry right when I ask them. Wait, that doesn't work either. <laughs> okay, so to get the child thinking, we go through this notice and wonder system, this, this process of paying attention to the problem. So we look at the problem and we start making a list. Okay, we don't, you don't know what to do with it. That's fine. You know, if math always came instantly, we wouldn't need, need school, you know, and, and we would never have anything new to discover. So let's see what we can discover here. You start making a list of the things that they see. So for instance, I say, oh, I notice, I notice fractions. That's the first thing I notice. And oh, fractions are scary. So I might need to take a few breaths and kind of calm my heart down before I can think about it. And that's a real human response to a math problem that's got you stuck. So Tony, what do you notice? So I notice... Um, both of them are bigger than one half. Okay. So I know my answer is going to be more than one. All right. Cherry Lynn. I noticed that the, the numbers on the bottom are different. They don't, I can't easily put them together. That's true. That they're, they're different types. If, if they were both thirds or if they were both fourths, it would be easier. But when you've got two thirds plus three fourths, then it's, there's no simple way to do it. Um, let's see. I noticed that if it was one half plus one half, that would be easier. But two thirds is a little bit more than one half. Well, Tony said this and three fourths is a little bit more. But they're each less than one. So the answer's got to be less than two. I wonder how much less. Is there something else you notice? I notice that on one of them, the one half would be easier to pull out than the other one. So if I wanted to break down that three fourths, I could do a half and a fourth. Oh, yeah. So we could change the problem into two thirds plus one half plus one fourth. I wonder if we could do that to the two thirds. I wonder how much more that is than a half. Well, I know it's one third plus one third. I don't know if that helps us or not. Let's see. I noticed that. Oh, let's see. Well, if I drew a picture of a pizza and divided it into thirds, I notice if I cut the pizza in half, that cut would split one of those thirds exactly into two. So that like one half of the pizza is the same as one third plus a half of a third. And you continue with this back and forth, noticing and wondering different things about the problem until something you've said sparks an idea in your child, in your child's mind, sparks a connection, helps them to put these ideas together, helps them to create an, an explanation that makes sense to them. But 
don't worry if you run out of time before solving this problem. Did you know that there have been math problems that mathematicians have worked on for hundreds and hundreds of years, and even some famous problems are still unsolved today? The right answer is not our goal. We have to keep telling ourselves that because we're trained by our school experience. The right answer is not our goal. It's the reasoning and the making sense that's the goal. And sometimes that takes longer than a 20-minute math lesson. But when we get down into this, this noticing, this wondering, this creating our understanding, it's amazing how much we and our children can learn in the struggle. Yeah, and that's a good takeaway, I think, because even I've put up like a math puzzle on a whiteboard and left it there for a couple of days and people have tinkered with it and we've played with it a little bit, but we never solved it. And then it got erased by younger brother and I think, oh no, you know, or maybe I get ready to put a new one up and we haven't solved the old one. So I give them the answer and, and that doesn't really help them make sense like we're talking about. And sometimes the unsolved problem, you can just let it kind of simmer on the back burner of our minds. I know with my kids, a lot of times whenever we would run into a really hard concept in math, it was good to just take a complete break from it, go away, do something totally different for two weeks or three weeks or a month or however long we needed, and then come back. And it's like the the kids often will make a jump because it's it's been festering in the back of their heads without them really realizing it. And it, it's easier when you come back. You can take those puzzles and if we didn't solve it this time, put the same puzzle up maybe three months from now and see if we have any new ideas. I think one of the words you used earlier on in that part of our discussion was recipe. And we have friends who are pastry chefs and they can be playful with food because they understand the principles of a recipe, not just a third of this and a pinch of this and a dash of that and whatever, they can create something new with food that has never happened before, which can be really entertaining and delicious. Same thing with certain writers who can take familiar ideas and just put a fresh set of eyes on them. And it's like, this is a thing I've read dozens of times in my life. They made it brand new to me so that I can see it for the first time again, which is really exciting when somebody's able to do that. Yeah, and that's the same sort of approach, same sort of reasoning we want to bring our children to in math. So talking about those puzzles and things, I love family style learning um, in all subjects. Um, and in the past, I thought that you can't really do that with math because you have to know and master certain concepts before you can move on to others. You have to finish first, first grade math before you move on to second grade math. But can I make math something we learn together regardless of ages? Yeah, I think that's another one of those myths of learning that we have. We ha have a lot of myths based on our, ch our classroom experience. And school math is sort of like you climb a ladder rung by rung, one topic after another. It is hard to do school math as a family because each person's at a different level and you're not allowed to go out of, out of that order. But real math, if, if you think of it, it's not like climbing a ladder. It's more like a nature walk. You're exploring this big world of ideas, and you can explore it in any order you want to. The school math, it's sort of like if we would tell our kids in science, like, oh, no, you can't study mammals yet because you haven't mastered your plants. That's the way we treat math. Then math doesn't have to be that way. We can... We can see the world. We can wonder about it as a group. We can each create our own insights. We're each learning at our own level and adding things to this mental web of concepts that we call understanding. If we're playing a math game, one of the children might be meeting some new idea in the math game for the first time, just feeling their way through it. Another might be, an older one might be practicing and refining skills Another child or the adult might be putting well-honed knowledge to work as we figure out our way through a new strategic challenge. A good math game is enjoyable at all of these levels, not just at a certain grade level. Or say we're doing a math art lesson, a, a younger student might be focusing on how to use the tools, how to control the compass and get it to make circles that don't have glitches in them. And an older student is thinking more about not just the process of making the circle, but how the properties of the circle and of lines and of angles combine 
to create the design they're, they're working on. Each one of us in doing this is doing real math. We're thinking about numbers, shapes, patterns, making sense of the way they work, building our comprehension individually, and growing as a family as we explore these ideas together. I have an example for speaking to the art. Um, you had a poly art math, I think, where you create pictures using triangles. And, and I thought that would be really fun. So we all sat down to do it together. And, you know, my oldest one was creating his own design. And the next one was creating her design, but getting a little bit frustrated that it wasn't turning out the way she wanted. And the younger ones just wanted to color in and or paint the one I drew for them. But I figured, you know, this is a win. They're seeing these shapes. They're working with these shapes, whether they're creating themselves or coloring them in themselves. There's all kinds of ways to learn. And the fun thing about learning as a family is that the younger ones absorb what the older ones are doing too. So it's it's like, you know, they may be doing their level that looks like they're not doing much, but they're also paying attention to what the others do. And that makes the ideas that they're going to meet later come more naturally to them because they've seen them before. Well, there's different places that one of their key principles is teach one another and their learning models. And so the older kids teaching the younger, younger kids is also a super powerful thing to help both the older and the younger cement that learning. So one thing that has come to mind for me as I've thought about this playful math concept is this question, which is, can you educate a kid on the variety of math just with games and puzzles? Or do you need formalized curriculum, whether it's uh, one that you can go buy or one that you can get free online like Khan Academy? What's your uh, latest thinking on that? It depends a lot on the age of your child and what you're wanting out of math. I think Many homeschool families would kind of feel lost without a curriculum, but there are a lot of families that do really well with a more unschooling approach. And you can easily unschool math, at, at least in the early years, the primary years, if you want to. If you think about it, if we really needed a curriculum to learn math, how would humanity have ever discovered it in the first place? The math curriculum or the online program like Khan Academy it's merely a tool. It's one possible map to guide you as you explore that world of mathematics that we talked about. The tool can be useful or not, depending on your goals. In the very early years, say from preschool to third grade, I think a math curriculum can often do more harm than good because it can stifle a child's natural curiosity and reasoning skills, partly because we learned math as a performance subject when we were in school. Our natural way to do it is to try to train our children in this performance subject. And it's hard to make little kids perform. <laughs> they, they don't do it well. They resent it. They resist it. We really, at that, at that age, it's better to learn from games, from library books, from daily life experiences. We want to explore, play, discuss, think about big ideas like symmetry or infinity Wonder about patterns that you discover. What happens if you cut a piece in half and then you cut the half of half and then you cut half of half of half? Play with these ideas and so much will come from that. You'd be surprised how much your children learn that way. As you grow into the middle grades, a textbook can serve to remind you of some of the topics that you might not think about in daily life. You may not think about adding fractions or multiplying fractions. So having the book kind of reminds you, oh, yeah, we should talk about that. We should see how that works. But you remember to use it as a tool. The book is not the boss. Never do calculations in a certain way just because the book says to. Always fight to make sense of the math, even if it's a topic like long division or multiplying fractions. Diving deeper into those older students, do you have a recommendation for a specific curriculum for those older students? That's probably, that's one of the top most frequently asked questions I get. And when I was younger, less experienced myself, I used to take the question at face value and say, okay, try this curriculum because it's the one I like. Don't use that curriculum because I don't like that one. 
But, you know, all of us have different personalities and the program that will click with me and my family is not necessarily the program that will click with you and your family. The main thing is that we always want to think of math as this knowledge subject, not a performance subject. With the older kids from algebra onward, math is sort of an abstract game of ideas. We're trying to make sense of things that we don't see in normal life. We're trying to to build connections beyond what our daily life would teach us. And a math textbook provides a useful guide when we're in this unfamiliar landscape, as long as we remember that it's our tool, not our boss. And which textbook, which math curriculum you choose isn't all that important. They all cover roughly the same material. The important thing is how you use it. You don't let yourself fall into the trap of memorizing a rule, following a recipe, doing these steps because it's how the book said to do it. At any point where you stop making sense of the topic, you've stopped doing math because real math is always this knowledge subject. You have to make sense. You have to reason. You have to build the connections between the ideas. That's the only thing that matters. You can pass all the math tests in the world, but if it doesn't make sense to you, you haven't learned math. That's super good. Thank you. So I have a favorite business writer, leadership writer named Greg McEwen, and he said something I found a little bit provocative uh, recently, and he says... Research has uncovered two distinct types of perfectionists. The first is excellence-seeking perfectionists. These are people who hold high standards for themselves and others. And then the second type is failure-avoiding perfectionists. And these are people who are consistently anxious that their word is not sufficient or adequate, who fear losing the esteem of others if they fail to attain perfection. The way that Greg frames this, the way he writes this, it seems that he's kind of making the case that excellent seeking is obviously going to be better for a person's approach than failure avoiding. How do you think play-based learning in math can help promote excellence seeking? That's that's an interesting way of thinking about personalities. I know I can see a little bit of, of both of those in myself. I think, you know, there's sort of this spectrum of um, of ways of looking at the world, and sometimes you lean a little bit more one way or the other. I think a better question might be, how can our play-based math encourage both of these personality types to succeed? Which whichever type of personality our child is is presenting, how can we help them succeed? Um, for instance, an excellent seeking perfectionist might enjoy and thrive in school math in that performance-based situation and yet never develop much more than a rote-level understanding of math. Play-based math, puzzles and games and stories and library books, explorations and research topics, it pushes them to go deeper to make sense of the subjects. You know, any game worth playing is really impossible to do by rote. So they they push beyond that rote-level of understanding. But I think... It's the failure-avoiding child whose life can be really completely transformed by play-based learning. These children often build a protective shell around themselves when they're faced with the performance-oriented type of lesson. They say, oh, I can't. It's too hard. I don't get it. Because if you give up, you don't try, you can't fail. It's safer just to say, oh, I don't get it. I don't do math. Math games and puzzles are gentler, less stressful. Children can be safe to try and try again. You never win a game the first time through. If you think about the online games that they play, they they are used to the idea that you play, you explore, you fail, you die, you get another life, you go back and you do it again. And that's just, that's part of the game. Whether you win or you lose, it's all part of the game. And even the final score doesn't matter so much as the fun you have in playing it, the focus on the strategy, on using the things that you know to figure out something new. Games reward sense-making. They give you this dopamine type of boost or something. It doesn't really matter what your personality style, 
a good math game will push you to develop true mathematical thinking. I love that. I don't think that's the response Tony was expecting, but <laughs> we, we really like it. I think it's, it's really insightful. So thank you. And Denise, it's been a pleasure to have you. We've been looking forward to this interview and I hope that our audience enjoys it as much as we have. So thanks for coming to the show. Is there anywhere we can send our audience to find you, find your resources? I know you have lots of free things, but you also have books you've written and probably more than I even realized myself. Yeah. I have a lot of free things on my blog. I've also written more than a dozen books designed to help parents, grandparents, teachers, anyone who works with children develop this more playful and resilient attitude toward math. My latest project is the Tabletop Math Games Collection series of books. It covers topics all the way from preschool to high school. If you'd like, I can send you a sample file of four games that your listeners can print and play with their kids. These are not your typical games that you find online that rely on speed. You don't have to be a fast thinker. The focus is on being creative, reasoning, figuring things out. All of these games can be enjoyed by a wide range of ages. Um, you can find most of my books in ebook or paperback at all the regular online bookstores. Uh, many libraries have them. You might try your library loan system. And you can discover more of my work at denisegaskins.com, my blog. Thanks, everybody, for listening today to the Learning is Disruptible podcast. Be sure to share the episode with a friend, subscribe to the show, and leave us a five-star review. Have a great day.